You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to this week's Attack and Scrum podcast. Once again, we are in Dan Killick's kitchen, which is becoming a, a home from home. He's just made an exceptionally good brew and cracked open the beers. So your uh, your hospitality this week is most welcome, Dan. Yeah, I've been working on my tea making. Yeah. The two weeks paternity I've been off. It was bloody awful beforehand. It's good to get a good yeah. beer now. Well, it is. How, uh, how has week two with two kids gone? It's been... You're looking a bit bleary this week. Yeah, honest. I am struggling a little bit today. Back to work tomorrow, which, uh, which should be a rest, actually. I'm, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully Victoria's not listening now, but I'm, uh, I'm chomping a little bit to get back in there now. Well, she, she <laughs> called you out the other week when you were talking about when we were <laughs> ribbing you for going on a, yeah. a family holiday to watch the Lions, so you can't rely on Mrs. Kane not listening I didn't in. know she was a listener, but maybe she's a closet listener. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there we are. But not a bad, not a bad week. Yeah, exactly. How did you get on? Yeah, good. So I'd um, managed to sneak a ticket last minute to the Lions fundraiser last week. Cheers for the invite. Well, I, I only got an invite myself, Dan. You know, you got to look after, got to look after number one, haven't you? That could have gone in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, you, you could have. Bigger than um, pockets, those. Yeah, they are, especially on the uh, the dinner jacket, the, the tuxedo I wore as well. It's from when I was carrying a bit of extra timber as well. It was. Looked like I'd had it fitted at millets. It looks like a tent on me. So um, yeah, you probably could have snuck into one of those. But it was good. Uh, good evening, actually. Plenty who, of um, who was there? So there was Q and A with Gats and Warburton to start with, which was which was illuminating. Warburton, as usual, kind of professional self, giving nothing away. Um, but as you know, I got a massive kind of man crush on Warbs as well. So just to be in the same room as him was quite a um, was quite a thing. Lucky you had some baggy clothing on there, was it? <laughs> yeah, not quite that bad. Yeah, probably shouldn't use the expression "man crush," but he was. Um, yeah, he was good again. You do, you, you do hear the bloke speak, and you just think, right? He's a he's a proper leader. You know, I know he's not like the kind of big the leader rousing. But yeah, yeah, he just leads by example. He's a quality. He's a quality. Um, yeah, he's a quality captain, a class act. I think he'll be. Um, 
I honestly, I think I'm you know, starting to real get really excited by it. Gatland, on the other hand, was in like ridiculously good spirits. He was almost pulling out his um, his Bernard Manning blue comedy set from the seventies or something, which was uh, which yeah, it wasn't quite as offensive as uh, as Bernard Manning, but it was. Um, Good fun, nonetheless. So, yeah, he seems remarkably relaxed about the yeah, whole thing. Cool Not that I was sat on a table with him or anything. I was sat there listening to the Q&A, but, yeah. you know, you start to get a feel for it. Yeah, nice and, uh, yeah, uh, Paul O'Connell, come on later on, he was very, you know, very interesting. Freak of a man. Like, you know, just even when you sat, even when you sat 500 feet away from him, he's, he's, he's massive, yeah. absolutely massive. And um, who else? Yeah, Gavin Hastings was on that panel as well. He's good value and um, who am I missing Martin Johnson who we mentioned a few weeks oh, ago as being kind of like a guilty Lions hero one of those players you're allowed to like in Lions years and never never right. outside of that so um, yeah that was um, that was a really good evening though. Did any of them say anything you didn't expect them to come out with or is it fairly sort of fairly standard stock lines well I think you, you probably saw I tweeted that Warbs was talking about his admiration for Greg Laidlaw as a leader so I was like right there we go that's, that's something we've uh, something we've got in common <laughs> which I'm getting pelters for by the way yeah my um, in fact while we're on the paternity issue my mate Craig was supposed to be joining us uh, this evening to do a Lions Memories which we started um, which mm. we started the other week and um, as of recording he has a one hour old Son, so uh, that's his. Uh, to be fair, a fairly decent excuse for yeah well, for not making we should, it. We should wish him congratulations. We? we should, yeah. I um I said, despite him being the most vehement English rugby supporter, I said that his, his surname was Jelly. I uh, I said um, that Yai and Jelly would make a would make a, a great name in Lions. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Yeah. so uh, yeah, congratulations to them. And uh, Dav's with us as well, um, furiously writing away, doing the actual legwork here, while me and Dan are kind of sat there on the wing. Waiting for people to pass the ball, sipping on tea and beer. Um, Dav's doing much more research. How are you, Dav? Good evening, gents. Someone's got to keep the lights on. That's it. Yeah, doing the doing the donkey work, making sure everything um, everything ticks over. You made it through the rain, all right as well. It's pissing it. Just down about today. nice Welsh weather down here in London tonight. It is. Um, right, we've got loads to get through tonight. As usual, we we'll split the podcast into two parts. The first of which we're going to be having a look at. Club rugby and specifically kind of where the Welsh regions are in the wake of Saracens winning the uh, Heineken Cup, as was. I just can't get used to calling it European Rugby Champions Nonsense. Cup. I don't Heineken Cup it is. Sorry? You never are, you? No, I just, like, if it was a catchier name, like I don't want to give Heineken free plugs on this podcast, but it just sounds especially better, doesn't it? It's too long. Especially with your background, yeah. yeah. Um, it's too long. I don't even, I don't even like Heineken. Right, it really, it's a bit like I've got real beef with. I quite like the drop of No, I didn't do it for me at all. But nonetheless, Heineken Cup just works. So for the purposes of this, we're going we're gonna to let them off the hook there. I digress. In the wake of Sarri's winning that, we'll have a look at kind of where the Welsh regions stand with regards to the, the kind of the great clubs across Europe and how far off the likes of Saracens the Welsh clubs are. In the second part of the podcast, we'll be having a look at those clubs in, I guess, a bit more kind of... Uh, real-time stuff and seeing how they're they're preparing for the semi-finals that they've got coming up next week so that's all to come in part two but we'll start by having a look back at, at last weekend's game did you did you chaps watch that yeah I had a chance to watch the uh the Saris Clermont game I have to say really entertaining game of rugby I'm not sure if you managed to catch it I did but yeah 
end-to-end stuff. And, I mean, whilst, I guess, the romantic in me thought, you know, Claire would be wonderful if Clement finally captured the crown, I thought Saris were well worth the victory. Yeah, I, I found myself coming around to your way of thinking. I mentioned last week that, yeah, very much the romantic in me wanted to see Clement Auvergne turn it, turn it around and, and pick one up. But then again, in Lions here, you do look at it and go, well, you know, the core of that squad is going to be he's going to be present on the Lions tour and that can only be a good thing. Well, did, uh, did you get a chance to sit down or were you in kind of a paternal nightmare mode at that point? I did catch up with it. I caught up with it between, well, from about midnight <laughs> till about two in the morning, so it was a little bit, little bit odd. Um, great game, wasn't it? Really strong game. Um, it wasn't all Saracens' way either, was it? The uh, Claremont boys were, were, were right up for it. I, I think they were. It, it never really felt to me as though Saracens were going to we're going to lose it. And I think that's kind of what makes them such a good side on the pitch is they have that air of a side who can close out big games. Mm. That's one thing I think. Yeah, you can, you, you can draw a few parallels to New Zealand, can't you? And they just play such sensible rugby, like, don't they? It's, it's, all, it's all in the right areas. It's not great, you know, it's not sort of um, fantastic. It's not as exciting to watch no. as you as your Blacks, is it? You know, when they, uh, when they spot a 70-yard... A seventy-yard breakaway and it's on. You know, there's there's times where I get a real thrill watching New Zealand. I wouldn't say I ever. I have massive admiration for Saracens, but I wouldn't say I necessarily get a huge thrill watching them. I think the common thread is between the two. I, I agree they're totally different styles of play, but I agree with Dan that they both know how to win. Mm. And I think the one thing when you looked at the Saris quarter, uh, sorry, semi-final, and then the final, even when it was tight, you just felt like they were in total control and they would they would turn it on and win at some point and. They're a team who thrive on putting pressure on the opposition and they've got a brilliant kicking game. They control the field, but actually their work on the floor is exceptional and actually they put teams under huge amounts of pressure every breakdown and it, it, people just break. Yeah, they know that if you keep, if you keep the pressure up, sides will crack and they don't play silly plays. It's all, it's all very cute. It's that to me is their, biggest, is their biggest strength though, is the mentality that they that they have that yeah. they never look like a side that that feels like they're going to get beaten but it's because they're so well drilled they're a very technical side I think there's a huge amount that goes on you know goes on off the field and they know what to do in, in the right areas and then from that comes confidence and it, and it goes on doesn't it and they they never look like losing and you know they went on a fair play to them we'll come on to have a look at how the, the Welsh sides stack up to the likes of Sarri's a little bit later on. But there's been a lot in the press and on various other podcasts and stuff this week that are kind of saying that Sarri's are the best ever professional side. I just want to start with that. Would you fellows agree with that? Oh yeah, we heard this three or four years ago about Toulon, didn't we? About this mm. great Galacticos and how they were the best side ever. I think, you know, it's tempting to try and create something and make it more than it is all you can say at the moment is that Toulon uh, sorry Saracens rather are the most dominant club side currently playing the game I'd argue they could probably take on any of the the super rugby franchises and beat them as well but you know these things all work in cycles Mm. I think if you look at the Toulon side that was dominant for three years no one thought that would ever end with the um, you know the open checkbook and yet that's come to an end Saracens look like they've got a great academy and great system coming through and a lot of their players are much younger but all these things work in cycles and even if Saracens go on and do it for a couple more seasons I think to be really the best side ever they're going to have to do a bit of a Man United in football and do it for sort of a decade before they're considered the best ever I I totally agree they've got a long way to go 
but um, it's, certainly, it's certainly right to be talking about them um, as being a, a fantastic great side. They, they've just got to win more, haven't they? And that's going to that's going to come with years. But the big difference, I suppose, between um, Saracens and your Toulons is, as Dad pointed out, the age, the age of the Saracen side. You know, you're, you're, you're averaging sort of what 24, 25. Um, they, they're going to be young, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them in the pack as well, probably coming into their peak around 28, 29. That's a little bit frightening. I think what they have got is an exceptional coaching coaching staff. If you look at the way they're drilled and the way that the players they pick up from around the world, they're not always big names. They do have some big names in that squad, but they also pick up players, especially seemingly from South Africa and prop, who aren't necessarily household names, mm. but they fit in seamlessly. And now it's almost yeah. unthinkable that those the cock, the Salison's tighthead, isn't playing for South Africa. And I think Mark McCall's got a lot to do with that. I mean, he coached the Ulster to the Celtic League back in the mid-noughties. He's gone over to Saracens and, you know, okay, he's picked up a great legacy of Brendan Venter, Eddie Jones, etc. But he's the guy who's been the consistent theme there and he's really put his stamp on the squad now. Yeah, he's done an unbelievable job, hasn't he? Just looking at... He really he doesn't he doesn't just look at sort of a, a massive name, does he? He looks at where they'll slot in. Mm. And um there's gonna be people people coming after him, isn't there? In terms of, you know, probably national I, I think the island job is his. Yeah. I think he'll stick around at Saracens and then he will take the next natural step, which will be to fill Joe Smith's Yeah. The the island job will uh will probably come to him if he Look, I, th- I think if Ireland have a, if Ireland have a great World Cup, I think Joe Schmidt will get the all blacks job. If Ireland have a crap World Cup, then he'll be out of a job mm. anyway. I agree, and I, th- I think um, you know the thing I like about McCall what he's done. You know, we talked about the, the big names, and Dan, you've already alluded to it. But like, you look at their back row on Saturday. Everyone talks about Billy Vinopola, and mm. he had a very good game. But actually, Jackson, Jackson Ray, and Rhodes, mm. you know, two guys who are nowhere near international recognition, but they work incredibly hard for the rest of the team. There's not a lot of flair in there, but the work those guys do on the park is incredible. And you know, you think we talk about sort of big salaries and big names and. You know, all these Galactico players those are the sort of guys you can pick up not for the top price in the market and yet they're still absolutely integral to that team's success I think yeah that's a, that's a really really good point I think at this point it'd be nice to kind of move it on and let us have a look at, at some of the Welsh sides and, and see how kind of where they stand in, in some of those key facets of what makes a, a really um, a really successful team the mentality thing is that is probably the first thing to um, to kind of have a look at I guess we'll know a little bit more after next weekend with how the, the Scarlets and the Ospreys get on but do you think there's a big gap between the, the Welsh regions and, and that kind of killer mentality that Saracens have? I think the thing is it's same in sport, business wherever you are momentum is such a big thing and you think about guys who play cricket and haven't scored a run for two or three test matches it doesn't matter if you smack a six off the first ball or you just get a little nudge down to the boundary you just need to get something on the board and I think once you start building momentum it becomes very hard to stop and you know what Saracens have done over a number of years is create that winning momentum which almost is now like a drug for them and it fuels them and, and fires them onto new highs if you look at the Welsh regions I think we're all familiar with the sort of highs and lows we've been through. And that's probably the one thing I think that holds us back, you know, is the fact that we haven't had that true momentum across any of those clubs for a while. And if we're going to get that and compete, first and foremost, we have to be winning things like the the Celtic League. And so, yeah, this weekend's absolutely massive for us. Dan, slightly different question for you then. Which of the Welsh regions would you say has that strongest winning mentality? 
I'd say, well, at the moment, it's got to be the Scarlets, isn't it? And you can link them loosely to the Saracens in that the the, uh, the Scarlets have brought through a huge amount of youngsters, um, which obviously Saracens have done as well. So if you look at you know, 15 of the 23 players that took on the Ospreys at Parker Scarlets um, a few weeks ago came through or, or took a part in the you know, development pathway of the Scarlets. So that's a pretty pretty impressive um you know ratios. Yeah. So they've there's been a lot of talk at the moment, isn't there, about the Saracens culture and um, you know it being very very unique. It is different, isn't it? Um, the way that they wanted to sort of de- they develop the younger boys and get them to sort of look outside of rugby. I think the Scarlets are, are, are doing that to a lesser extent, but are are moving in the right direction. And so you you, you can loosely link the two. I think. Um, Sally's create that winning culture, don't they? So, like, you know, you're right. People off the field are being encouraged to, you know, work, use their brains as well as just their brawn. They're getting qualifications, etc. Yeah. But mm. also, they reward them for success. So, they were at Oktoberfest a couple of years ago. They've been to train with the Jacksonville Jaguars and the NFL. You know, those guys get experiences that others don't, yeah. and it all feeds this sort of fuel that they are an organisation that's apart from the rest. Yeah, we well, took them away ahead of the Heineken Cup final mm. as well, didn't they? As, yeah. a, yeah. as to get away from the the kind of, I guess, the, the high of the pressure that comes with, with being in a, in a European final. It's great that the main coach is always thinking, what is the net, you know, what, is, what else can they do different? So then it, it obviously has a massive effect on the players because they then think, how can I, how can I develop? What, how can I make myself better, both in rugby and outside of rugby? It's, it's, it's clever, isn't it? It's not, it's not genius, but it's not something that is massively done probably in rugby. Um, It'll start to feed in now across the other sides, but what he's what they're doing there at the moment is a little bit different, mm-hmm. and it's paying off, isn't it? Plus, you've got the you've got an immense amount of money coming through there, haven't you? Yeah, so, so I, th- I think there's a balance. Isn't they it? Upon, so yeah. they've got momentum, brilliant. They've got a club environment which clearly is working. It's a winning environment. I think the two other areas that they excel at Saracens, which maybe we're slightly behind, coaching structure and then financial. So you've got some stuff on the fences this week, Dan, haven't you? Sarries. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Nigel Ray as chairman and uh, Johan Rupert there, the staff and billionaire. Um, I mean, that, just before we go into it, I mean, that helps, right? If you if well, you if you want to build a dynasty, it does help if you have a billionaire owner. Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just knowing that you've got that there, it allows you to do 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 a lot do a lot of things, doesn't it? But there. Yeah, they're not in a great position in terms of in terms of uh, what are they? For, I don't know, forty-seven, forty-eight million pounds in in, in yeah. debt, aren't they? And, I, uh, I guess how, no, with the safety net that if that ever became an issue, this guy steps in. Yeah, mm. it's a drop in the ocean yeah. for him, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's where it's yeah it's what what happens through Remgro, isn't it? That commercial vehicle that they <clears throat> that he uses, you know, will will that come to an end? And I suppose it's all. It's all hinged, isn't it, on the BT and Sky Sky deal? Really, everything's everything's pinned on that. So their their bubble their bubble could burst because in England at the moment you've got whoever's got the most money. Um, it's almost it's almost that's what's causing the problem is everyone chasing to the top, and it's actually having an effect on less and lesser clubs are uh, are in the are in, are in the red. Are they? I mean, we've only got Northampton. And uh, an Exeter at the moment that the are in the clubs in the black. Yeah. That are in the black, and when we talked about culture, Exeter are the team that we need to be actually jumping up and down for and saying, "What a brilliant, brilliant club!" And they've done amazing things with a 
with where they have been. But I think the thing about the finances, you know, we looked at the Blues um, attendances, I think, last week. Mm. We were just talking off, off the pod. But actually, the Blues' highest attendances they've had were when they were a decent team. I yeah. don't think it takes mm. a genius to work out that a club that's winning, people want to go and watch. And I think Saracens, what they're doing here is as they're basically banking on rugby growing into a viable commercial entity. So they're putting a winning formula together now in the hope that as the BT money and the Sky money grows, that will become commercially viable. I mean, if you look at their P&L, they generate about £16 million in revenue. Down to your point, they have about £10 million quid going out for um, wages. But of that £16 million, about £6 million comes from the, from the, the, the TV money. Mm. And then, you know, they're making money elsewhere for about 10, but it's not a huge business. You contrast that to Wasps, who are making 30 million turnover through their stadium. You know, Saracens are playing a long game here, aren't they? They're taking losses up front with the hope that rugby grows on the same trajectory that probably football did in the 90s. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, it's very, very good points, isn't it? And they're, um, which is, which is a much bigger, sorry, a much less of a risk if you've got that safety net of having, totally. of having a massive benefactor behind you. Now, none of the Welsh regions have anything that's even close to that. I think it's a really interesting point that Dan's made about how a side like Exeter is punching well above their mm. weight. That, to me, feels like a much more sensible blueprint than, you know, kind of Saracens, which feels like a bit of a pipe dream. So I guess the question then you originally posed, Jeb, was around how far away are the Welsh regions from there? I think if you look at the model in Ireland for a second, just to consider where Ireland have been, so look at the semi-finals of that, the Champions Cup or the Heineken Cup previously, two Irish clubs there this year, none the year before, but then one the year before that, one the year before that, one the year before that, and they've had a whole host of quarter-final appearances. So Ireland are consistently appearing mm. at the top table, even if it's not back to the heady days when Leinster used to dominate the tournament. So... Ireland have the same turnover from, as the, uh, the Irish Rugby Union has the same turnover as WIU. They put more of that into the clubs and actually do things like they've underwritten the loan at Tillman Park for the new stand. So actually, this new, you know, we talked about it at length last week and the week before around this new centralisation of ownership of the regions. Actually, that is our equivalent to a billionaire. You know, the the yeah. Welsh Rugby Union are making a hell of a lot of money, you know, 75, 80 million a year. They're pumping already 25 million to the regions. If we wanted parity with Ireland, that would probably be another 15 million going in. And if you think about that, all of a sudden, an extra 15 million to those regions is a bit of a game changer. So I, th- I feel that actually there is a blueprint there to allow us to compete financially. But I think we've always got to recognise that even with that, if you look at France, which I know the Clermont, for instance, Clermont spends 31 million pounds every year on their operating costs. The Blues don't even generate eight at the moment. Yeah. So we're never, ever going to be as fully funded as some clubs. And that's where I think, just as Exeter have, we have to think differently. You know, What's the role of our academies? What's the role of um, bringing some players from the less glamorous leagues of the world who can do vital jobs? And I think you know, if we try and act like a French club or try and act like a big yeah. English club, we will lose to those clubs. Yeah. And I think, I, I think even potentially go... <laughs> Go bust, yeah. you know that's that is a that is a reality. I think we've seen the WU are willing to step in in some of these instances. It's not necessarily always going to be the case, as we know. I think the really interesting point you touched on there, Dav, is the the role of academies, mm. and it's very very similar with Exeter. That I think the reason why that club's growing so well is people have a real affinity with the players. And when you watch, and you know, actually similar, I'm sure Scarlet's fans would say the same thing. When you watch a number of players that you've seen come through the system, you can't help but 
feel that much closer to it. So even when you've got the the identity problems that well that Welsh regions either have or don't have, depending on which side of the fence you sit, if there's a successful set of players out there who you can identify with because they've come through the system and they're local lads, etc., it makes it a damn sight easier to get behind. You just have to look at the talent we've lost to England over the last couple of years, where it's, you know, Owen Williams, there's a load of under-20s boys at Bristol, Bath, etc., Max Clark at Bath, the centre, you know, who we've lost over the bridge, who, you know, are potential players for us. And actually, if you think of the Exeter model, what Exeter do brilliantly is they utilise the championship and national one to give their talent the opportunity to play week in, week out. You know, Cowan Dickey's brother, yeah. who played down at mm. Plymouth for the year, he's back in the squad now. They use that really well. And we've cut, we've talked about the role of either the Dragons as development region or the or the Premiership. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think at the moment that obviously isn't as effective as it's being done in England. We're losing players, so if we could retain that talent, actually, could you imagine we had Owen Williams still in Wales as another high quality standoff, yeah. and all the other players have gone across there. Well, all of a sudden, there's well, no uh, competition. Around through 25, yeah. 30, 30 yeah. players, can we with yeah. ease? And yeah, that. <laughs> It comes back to how important that role of the Premiership is, isn't it? That's our money. We yeah. don't have we don't have the pot, so we've got to make use of that. As I've said a million times, if you were to make a, a first fifteen of players who've left the Dragons and are still playing, you've got a hell of a side there. Exactly. You know, and it's not just big money players like Toby, even you know players like Dolman down at down at Exeter. In fact, mm. love to see him playing for the Dragons. So yeah, so um, it, some really interesting um, some really interesting points in there. I guess this is something you'll know a lot more um, about, Dav, is the, is the commercial side of things. Can the Welsh regions compete as commercial identity, you know, as commercial entities, sorry, with the likes of, of, the, of the French and the, and the English clubs? I think, you know, we can, and unfortunately people don't like to hear this, there's other two ways of doing it, either the benefactor model that we currently have, and there's some very rich people who've given away millions to the game. We talked about Brown at Newport, Cuddy's done it at the Ospreys, you know, People, there are people in Wales who are willing to give that money away, but that is not a sustainable commercial model. I think for me, and we talked about a length, if we had a centralised structure where the WIU had a larger share in all the clubs and was able to fund the majority of the playing budgets and do central things like have one finance team for all the regions, one marketing team, be able to collectively do the, sp- sh- the shirt sponsorship across five entities yeah. rather than one, we'd see a much bigger benefit. And if you think about in Ireland how that works, the Irish Rugby Union spends £37 million a year on players, which then allows the clubs to go off with the money they've got left over and sign the big-name Southern Hemisphere players to top the squad up. And if you think about the Ospreys at the moment, the Ospreys actually turn over on par with the with the blues and actually less than the dragons so less than not the dragons the scarlets but what they do re- and they but they spend less on wages the ospreys only spend about nine sorry six million pounds a year on wages because they've got so many ndcs in place nine of their players the wlu are paying 60 percent of their wages which allows the ospreys then to top their squad up with genuine talent and i think we've got to think a lot more savvily as a as a nation and four teams how we can do that more to allow us to stretch our budgets. Those NDCs, are they, you know, is the current system working, which in theory, you know, if you'd say, right, the Ospreys have produced these players, they've been rewarded with central contracts and therefore the Ospreys are incentivised to keep producing these kind of players. Is that is that model kind of 
set up set up to, to perform that function I think it's the bare minimum like longer term you would love a scenario where like in New Zealand with Richie McCall and Carter how they kept them there for years is mm. the, the New Zealand Rugby Union basically gave them a special fee to stay there so you can imagine someone like Warburton or Alan Jones your biggest players let's let the, let the WIU pay them 100% of the salary because actually we know with someone like Warburton he's hardly going to feature for the Blues so actually, and with, when we have these debates like should he play in the playoff this week or not because of the Lions, the WRU can make the call and not leave the Blues and Warburton in a tricky position. Does that make it difficult though if you're a head coach not knowing, you know, having a third, part, well, having a third party like the union calling the shots and saying, right, you need to play Warburton this weekend, don't play Warburton this weekend. You know, I think on the, on the, odd, uh, the odd Pro 12 game, <coughs> I don't think it makes that much of a difference. If it's, you know, if it's a, something that, that's going to dictate your European future for the next season, surely that should be the coach's decision. I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference if you know from the outset that this is the situation. Um, the reason, you know, the reason why we're thinking it could be a bit of a mess at the moment is because we don't, you know, it, we don't quite know where we're coming and going. But if it's clear from the outset, then everyone knows, and you, you've got other players who. who, who you know, who come in and, and back him up if he's not available. The WWE make the call and say, no, you're not, you're not going out there. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a tough one. I really do when it comes to selection because I think you've got to be, you've got to give that to the to the head coach because that is the that is the fundamental thing that you're going to get judged on is whether you make those right calls. And if you've got a player that is pretty central to your team and is funded by the union. And that decision's kind of taken out of your hands. I don't know, I worry about that. I think it's a double-edged sword though, isn't it? Because whilst on one hand you can be a player taken away, you've got someone that blues in a Warburton example, like Ellis Jenkins, who yeah. they're grooming to come in and take his place. So actually it gives you a position of strength because actually on these NDCs at the moment, the players are restricted anyway. And you're seeing the benefit of that come through. You know, the Blues, Ellis Jenkins had a lot more game time this year at seven than he traditionally has had. Mm. At the Ospreys, you've got people like Thornton and Baird coming through in the second row instead of Alan Wynn. So actually, if we can get a bit more consistency across the regions and the coaches know the rules of engagement at the start of the season, they can plan for it and recruit or retain accordingly. It should, should help with the development. Yeah. Should, we should, and we, we hopefully won't lose it does. People, so it could have the reverse. I think the... I think the the danger is is that you tend to look at it from top down and go right. What's going to be best for Team Wales, right? Which because we all you know we all want to see a successful Welsh national side. I just think there's sometimes a danger if you look at it and go, okay, well, if the region, uh, sorry, if the union was able to have this much of a hand in selection, would they look at you know the Scarlets who are producing some great players and go, okay, right, cool, well, let's move a few of them over to the over to the Dragons, or yeah, that's a hypothetical scenario where the Scarlets are being run by the union. But if you were to look at it in East Wales with with Cardiff and with the Dragons, that's that's quite a, an applicable situation where you could go. Well, hang on, you know, can we start kind of making these calls if if they're if they're running the club and they're paying the wages? Well, why I, why wouldn't you say that? I think the WIU would they would end up spreading around the talent, and that's what we as rugby fans need, really, isn't it? We need strong. We need all the regions to be as strong as they possibly can be. That will involve taking players out from some. But if you've got a great academy, you know, if the Scarlets are producing brilliant players to only then go and play at the Dragons or or at Cardiff, eventually, yeah. Then I think you know that is potential. If you look at it now, they they're producing a really good squad of local players. But not all of them are, are they? And that's the thing. If you centralise the ownership of the regions, you could centralise our academy standards. 
And actually, whilst the Ospreys have an academy in Cardiff deal, actually, they probably all ladder up into someone at the WIU who's the academy director. So you get more you get more consistency and actually more sharing of best practice yeah. across those four clubs. Why is it that the Scarlets have a far better at it than the other clubs? Are they sharing mm-hmm. their knowledge? Are they or are they keeping it in, saying that we don't, you know, we're not going to share what we do? They, they're doing something right, aren't they? We need to sort of be open and say, have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about doing that? For the greater good of the game. And ultimately, if the players get shared round, but the WOU are paying for those guys' salaries, the Blues were the blueprint for this in 2009. We had sort of five or six really world-class Welsh internationals. We had five or six really big imports, and then we had some players coming through who were developing as a core part of that team. And since Peter Thomas pulled some of his investment back... We've had to lose those world-class players coming in. We've still got the Welsh internationals, and we've probably got too many journeymen topping yeah. it up. If all of a sudden you've still got the same front row, still say the same front row. So if the WIU start paying some of the wages, and all of a sudden you can get the next Xavier Rush, the next Ben Blair, not the next Samuel tonight. All of a sudden, you know, the Blues become more competitive. And in those games you're talking about, the the Magnus League games, well, so the Guinness Pro Twelve. No, games, go go. Where oh, you, yeah, yeah where. Um, Freudian slip, go Freudian on. slip. Where, um, where we could be resting the Welsh internationals, you've got these Kiwi imports or Slavkin imports who we don't have to worry about how many games they play. They can play week in, week out. And if you look at someone like Mathewa at um, Leinster, that guy is ever present. Yeah. yeah, and he is an excellent player who can play anywhere across that back line. It's what, it's what the, the fans, it'll draw him. join the fans as well, won't it? Because it's not all the, all the boys aren't away. You've got, you have quality there. Whether, uh, you know whether the Welsh boys are playing or not, so it'll have attendances. Cool. Just to to finish off, then taking it away from kind of the the ownership things, which I know we have a tendency to to slip down every week. The one element we've we've dipped in and out of is recruitment. Which of the Welsh regions, Dan, do you think is doing the the best recruitment of talent at the moment? At the moment, Scarlets, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, they're stretching their pound, aren't they? Yeah, they're. Uh, they're doing something very, very right, and uh, the other regions, you know, could take uh, could take a lot from that. It's player after player at the moment, isn't it? It's what the, do you know? There's an interesting article in the Irish Independent this week. Joe Lydon, who used to be the mm. Welsh, uh, Welsh and Wales, and obviously former coach of England, has got a program called uh, base. I can't remember what it's called, but effectively, it's going out around the world and finding Irish qualified players to come and play for the provinces. And they've already found a fly half in South Africa who's got Irish uh, heritage. And obviously, there's a huge population in America. There's something in America like six times the population of Ireland in America, America, Irish American. So, you know, they're looking outside the box to look at their future recruitment. And the Scarlets, in a roundabout way, do that in Wales. You know, the people they picked up, Jake Ball, all these people from around the world who have some uh, tedious Welsh link. They've managed to get them in on the cheap and develop them. And then the two other guys I think have been really interesting is obviously your second row you love this year. Ty Byrne. Ty, yeah. Ty Byrne. Yeah. But also the fullback, uh, Mike Collins, last mm. year. You know, he came across, no one really knew about him. He's playing for the, uh, the Blues in the Super Rugby this year. But when he came across, he was a bit of a nobody. Yeah. So the Scarlet's coaching network and scouting network is huge. I think that's a really important thing because we know at the moment there isn't that big money to, to splash and I think if you were to look on the flip side of it, obviously it's easy to say the Dragons are the worst region in every department, right? But when it comes to when it comes to recruitment, I think the Blues in recent years have been yeah, Paul. as as bad. And I think you've mentioned it with um, you know some of the some of the recruits at the Scarlets, but also at a, at a province like Connacht. You know when they brought in players like Ru and Aki and Aki, 
they've been the kind of players that have really been able to transform a region alongside some of the um, some of the talent that they've got going through, and that's the thing for me that's been missing at Cardiff Blues for a while. Yeah, yeah, very disappointing of the Blues, isn't it? It is, but yeah, we'll see how how things kind of change over the over the next few weeks, and then into the uh, into the new season, which. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe we're we're reaching the end of the end of the season now. Long way to go, yeah. Still two and a half weeks. That's, yeah, let's hang on. that's it. Well, hopefully there'll be some Welsh involvement after after this weekend as well. We're going to be previewing those games uh, very very shortly, so make sure you join us in part two. But as always, let us know what you think on Twitter at Attacking Scrum or by searching for us on Facebook. And uh, also, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe so you can just get this uh, podcast direct to your phone every single week as well. Part two coming up very, very shortly. Is uh, that you think is anything surprising in there, or anyone you're particularly looking forward to seeing? I another omission for me is Lloyd Williams. He's a passing nine. Um, everyone knows. Ups the tempo. I'm a big. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's he's hit real form, um, and we're a little bit shaky at nine. I think Gareth Davis. We've all agreed he's had a ropey season. Yeah, he played well. You know, in the in the derby on the weekend, but um, uh, you know Thomas Williams. Then he's he's he looks to be. You know, he's an exciting player, isn't he? And that that try that wasn't a try was brilliant. Mm. Um, but I would have had him over Alid probably. Um, I, don't, I don't think either of the Scarlet scrum halves who've gone have been the Scarlet's best nine this season. And Haverfield as well. I think Haverfield. Yeah, I think uh, this is the tour to be taking Haverfield for me. I, I would again. You know what you're going to get from Gareth Davis, which at his best is a really good attacking option and someone mm. who's always going to be a try threat. I think to a certain extent you know what you're going to get with Ali Davis as well. Mm. So I would have been tempted to take... I, I think I'd have rewarded Lloyd on form because he's struggled for large parts this season and in the last six, eight weeks has has Looked played really, really well. Yeah. And and like you say, has out and out service. He's also a captain He's also a captain as well. So at nine, with the back row being new um, and nine being such a sort of pivotal position, I just... Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him there. I mean, I, th- I hear what you're saying, but I think at nine, the one thing we've seen time and time and time and time again against the Southern Hemisphere sides from the Pacific is that 
they run out of steam pretty quick, mm. around so 50, 60 minutes. And the thing I think about Gareth Davis and Thomas Williams, which Lloyd doesn't have, is they are sort of snipey scrum halves on the fringes. Yeah. They, do, they can inject a lot more tempo than Lloyd can. Lloyd's great, safe pair of hands, great kicking game. But actually, I think what Gareth Davis, when he's on form, and what Thomas Williams looks like he can potentially do is they can change the game, but they can also keep that tempo going and start tiring out the big forwards down there. So... I think hopefully that's what we'll see. Because we've taken three scrum halves, he, for me, should be should be one of the three. Do you think? Well, it's only so often you can, you can carry um, Webb or Davis's tackle bags. You know, it must be pretty boring life for Lloyd Williams and the squad, where all he's doing is yeah. being the opposition, an opportunity for someone else to hold the tackle bag. I'd have, you know, I personally would have started him at nine. I'd have gone out and gone, this is a this is a good chance because I think he's in good form. For Wales, he's tended to play his best rugby off the bench, actually. He's not really had a game. when On those odd occasions he has started, he's not played particularly well. I'd have taken him out there and started him. And then I, I completely agree with what you're saying there, Dav. I'd have had probably Thomas Williams off the bench Yeah, I would have to inject that, that, try, that try-scoring threat and sniping. I would have started him as well, especially the combo. If you're going with him, then you, 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 pop, you, you probably got Anscombe. Anscombe, Anscombe a 10. It's a nice 9-10 combo in a back row that's new. Yeah, I think we missed a trick there. Indeed, yeah. Well, we'll... Uh, I'm sure there'll be there'll be plenty more uh, permutations to come with that squad. So yeah. we haven't mentioned mine. We've got, got a lot of heat. It's Dan Evans. We've got to speak. We've got to have a quick chat about him, surely. Yeah, we have. Obviously, I mentioned mentioned it quickly with with Murph in the same breath. I just think that they've they've kind of they're not interested in Dan Evans at all, are they? No. I think, and he is a wonderful club player, and would arguably be the first name on my team sheet of players I wish still played for the Dragons. Well, in the backs, Toby, Toby would be, Toby would be top of that list. He'd but, be up there, though, wouldn't he? He's got to be. But he's a brilliant player. Every, he is. every club he's played, that has been incredible. And but he is a club player, isn't he? Do you know what? I at some point, I, I don't know. I just think when the international game is becoming so robotic, a player like Dan Evans, who genuinely has great rugby intelligence, runs brilliant lines, does what a fullback should do. You know, he's not a converted winger playing fullback. He is a proper. Genuinely intelligent fullback, you know. I think there is, I think he has been overlooked at certain points, mm. but he's, you know, I guess he's coming towards the coming the to latter end. stages. And if you're looking at this as a as a World Cup development tour, then he's probably not not featured for that reason. Yeah, agreed. Right with the with the Rugby World Cup in mind, then let's have a look at the other big news or some of the other big news from this week, and that's the uh, the Rugby World Cup pool draw which happened today as we record it. So that was Wednesday. Um, I'm just going to quickly recap on that. So Pool A mm. is Ireland, Scotland, Japan, the hosts. And then it will be a, a European qualifier, so either Russia or Romania, and then um, a playoff team in that group. Pool B is New Zealand, South Africa, Italy, uh, Africa qualifier, which is more than likely going to be Namibia. And then the <laughs> the repechage, which just... That, that in itself just reminds me of like Olympic hockey mm-hmm. and things like that. There's, there's no room for a term like that in rugby, but that's probably going to be Tonga. And then Pool C is England, France, Argentina, the American um, American top qualifiers, which would probably be the USA, and then Samoa potentially mm-hmm. in that as well, which that's a, that's a, pretty, uh, a pretty tough group considering that what happened in 2015. And then most importantly... The Pool D, which is where Wales are, which is Australia, Wales, Georgia, and then the Oceania qualifier, which will more than likely be Fiji, and probably Canada joining them as well. Initial thoughts, Dav? 
I mean, aside from Pool A, I think it's probably the best we can have hoped for. Um, you know, we've beaten all the other teams mm. in that group. And if you look at Australia, they definitely papered over the cracks last World Cup by changing their rule where anyone over 60 caps yeah. could somehow magically now play for Australia. I think if you look at them in two years' time, they haven't got a lot of talent coming through. The Super Rugby teams are struggling. Yes, they always turn up on the big occasion, but I've just got a feeling that if we are all fully fit, we can beat Australia when it counts. And so I feel like it's a pretty good draw for us, given what else we could have had instead. I agree. As I mentioned with Murph earlier on, we're playing Australia virtually every fortnight until <clears> until that World Cup as well. So the tide has to turn at some point with beating Australia and you know I, I don't care if we lose every every game against them until the World Cup but it is a out of, out of all the Southern Hemisphere nations well out of, sorry out of all the, the the top seeds out of that I don't think Australia are, are necessarily anything to fear at the moment anyway yeah it's a good it's a good group I mean Australia they're, they're so so difficult to they're so difficult to beat aren't they even when you you think you're coming up against a poor Australia? They're they're just they've got a knack of winning, haven't they? So it'll be it'll be tricky, but we've got to be pleased with that one, haven't we? Mm. Yeah, Compared I think to so. what else is out there? And I think we just did a bit of a uh, a bit of a draw scenario earlier on oh, to, look, to look at it. So if have we you, have you got a, an imaginary wall chart out already? Imaginary wall chart is out already. Started to brand it this afternoon, um, but assuming the World Cup flows post the post groups as it did last time. So, i.e., groups, uh, the, for argument's sake, the winner of Group A plays the runner-up of Group B, and yep. so on. I think what you're looking at... That's how it worked last time, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, looking at this, on one side of the bracket, the winner of Group A is likely to be Ireland, mm-hmm. taking on the runner-up of Pool B, South Africa, or maybe Italy. Then they will play in the semi-final the winner of Group D, which would be either Wales or Australia, hopefully, versus the runner-up from England's group, which is either France or Argentina. So basically, Wales could have a... If Wales won their group, we could have a semi-final against either Ireland or South Africa. I think we'd feel more comfortable on that, because if we come second in our group, you're looking at that side of the bracket, we'd play England in the quarter-final. And if we won that, we would then go on to play New Zealand in the semi. Um, and then probably... Australia or Ireland again so it just you know previously we talked about just getting out of the group actually first time it's a decent stab at this we're not the type of team who can beat a top four nation two weeks running so actually what we're going to need to do is beat Australia early in the group and then hopefully get a favourable draw through to the semis when when anything can happen but yeah it makes it imperative if they follow the same structure as last time to win the group it does really, doesn't it? It almost turns that game against Australia into a knockout game. Yeah. Totally. You know, it's almost like a seven style thing where you go into the bowl if you lose that game. Mm. You know, you're playing for you're playing for pride. Yeah, and they are they are beatable, aren't they? Well, certainly at the moment, I think exactly like like Dav said, they put to pull together a very good side by breaking the emergency glass and, and calling back the likes of Gitto and um and I think that helped them at the last World Cup and they played very well you know we had our opportunities mm-hmm. to beat them and didn't but this time round I've not seen a huge amount of them to suggest that they're that they're unbeatable you know I know England are a very good side but 
England, uh, you know, beat them comprehensively. You know, whitewash them in their own backyard. And there's there's big problems in Australian rugby. You know, at a club level and at a participation yeah. level. They just turn up though in those tournaments, don't they? They're mm. always you know there or thereabouts the final, aren't they? And so it's going to be a bloody big game, but. Yeah, one much. We don't have to fear it, do we? No. And I mean, a couple of exciting games for me. I think the most exciting group is Group A. You know, Ireland, mm. Scotland, Japan, probably Russia or Romania and the playoff team. So that's probably Tonga. So that's a group that's wide open. Obviously, yeah, Ireland, Ireland would fancy that. Yeah. But you can totally see Japan at home turning over Scotland, for instance. And so Japan then looking at a quarter final against New Zealand. Similarly, but, Scotland. Could do, a, could do a job on, on Ireland yeah, so exactly. that's a really exciting group and the yeah. other one for me based on the autumn this year and the continued demise of South African rugby mm. Italy must be thinking this is probably our best chance ever ironically with two rugby championship yeah. sides in their group of getting out of the group for me I think Conor O'Shea will be looking at that game and yeah. targeting every game that they play now is building up to that game against South Africa mm. because they have a massive chance of getting out of there Bearing in mind they've beaten them already under his under his tenure, mm. and it's not as if that Italy side is anything special at the moment. I think you're going to see a lot of South Africans re-emerge from Japan and France over the next mm. couple of yeah. years because that group. I mean, if they come second out of that group, ironically, they actually have a nice pathway to the final. We have Ireland in the quarters, probably Oz or Wales in the semi. You know, South Africa do have a, if they get their act yeah. together. I wish they will, won't they? Have a, have a routine, but they are at rock bottom right yeah. now. Aren't yeah, they? it's it's interesting, Dan. They'll I, be they'll be happy with that group. I think they'll get it sorted by then. And the, I'm not the, sure. I'm not sure they will. I'm sure, yeah. I, I think the well, one sorted, the one, if you'll be better. Yeah, but also if you're worse, if you're second, if you're second seed, yeah. what's the one team you don't want to draw? You do not want to draw New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, I think they'd be happier against Australia. England or Ireland, you yeah. know, who wouldn't? The only advantage, I guess, playing as a tournament is if you get New Zealand in the group, you don't have to play them again until the final. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. I it. don't know. I think at the moment, though, I don't think many South Africans would be looking at this thinking, "Oh, great, New Zealand in the final." I think they've got a hell of a lot of work to be yeah. doing before. Yeah, I mean, I mean, on South Africa, if they pick, if they pick sensibly, mm. not like they have been doing, then they are they they will beat Italy. You know, even 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 with the current the current side they they put out fairly recently, but yeah, Italy with their one eyed fly half. This is it? Yeah, it's an astonishing story, really. It's isn't incredible, it? yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, a player kind of thrown on the scrap heap as is able to come back, and you know that that really would be the most remarkable of turnarounds. I'm saying that because I can't remember his name. No, can I? Should we move on? Yeah, let's move quickly <laughs> on. Right. In fact, it leads me seamlessly on, if I'd have looked at my notes, Dav, to the next item on our agenda, which is the residency rule. Mm. There you go. How about that? So the residency rule is set to change in 2020, and it's something we've mentioned on this podcast a few times, and it's going to extend from having to live in a country for three years, moving up to five years, in order to play via a, a residency qualification. Dan, I'm guessing you're, you're probably of the same opinion that I am, that you think this is a, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think it is three years. Just three years comes about too quickly, doesn't it? So five years, yeah. Just well, it's one to... contract. It's one World Cup cycle. It's half your career. Yeah, it's two, yeah five years is, is, is the right call. I think it's, it's sort of a middle ground. So, yeah, pleased with that. As you say, we did a, we did a pod on it mm. fairly recently. So, yeah. 
But it's not coming in for a little while, is it? It's not. Yeah. But I, I, I love the irony in the English press that everyone talks about New Zealand yeah. all of a sudden stop poaching the Fiji, <laughs> Tonga and Samoan players. Yeah. You know, the, the poll at last World Cup, the majority of the Samoan and Fijian players were born in New Zealand and actually were going back to their country mm. of their parents' ancestry rather than actually playing for New Zealand. So... I think you know the teams that who are probably set to be hurt by this most. It's Ireland and Scotland, Ireland, Scotland, yeah. England, and France actually more recently. France, yeah. Yeah. I mean, England, England will not suffer because their player base is too big for it to suffer, right? And they're under twenty to perform astonishingly. I don't think England. I don't think England are worried. I don't think England are worried at all. I think Scotland and Ireland. This will pose a short-term problem for them. It will do. I mean, England. It will hit them though. They won't be. They won't be massively worried. It'll, it'll greatly affect the other chap, you know, Scotland and and the likes. But I think England, it will have a little effect on them. But not. I, I think the pl- I think the player base is too big for England to worry mm. about it that much. Ireland and Scotland. But if it if it does mean that they stop looking at this kind of project player yeah, scenario and put the money instead into into encouraging youngsters to go and play grassroots rugby and bring it through the, the exciting thing about Scotland side for me is not WP Nell or Strauss or those players the exciting players in there are the Hogs and the Finn Russells and obviously Greg Laidlaw and, you know I, I think it's great to see some of that homegrown talent coming through and I think they're the players that young Scottish rugby fans will be watching going, yeah, that's who I want to emulate. Totally, but I think if you look at the length, the strength and depth, strength and depth at Leinster this year, I think Ireland has started to address some of these issues. A couple yeah. of years ago, they got Strauss and at Hooker, etc. Yeah. But if you look across the park now, the Irish provinces are looking like they've got quite a lot of depth. So actually, I think it is Scotland who are the ones who are going yeah. to struggle and they do have a smaller base of players to pick from. So... Yeah, Scotland they'll be worried about. I think Ireland, you know, you only have to look at our, your favourite second row at the Scarlets, Dan, who had to leave the country to try mm. and find a contract somewhere. You know, I think there's enough talent in Ireland now yeah. to get, make them OK. What about the impact on Wales then? Do we think this is something that's going to affect the national side? Not enormously. I mean, it'll affect, it'll affect everyone to a degree, won't it? But... Because it does affect everyone, I think it's it's not going to have a massive effect. I'm just trying to think of the players. Who are the players who've come in? Because Jake Ball was one, was he? Or did he have a grandmother? No, Jake Ball's... I don't think it's grandmother. I think Jake Ball's mother's Welsh, I think. Yeah, it was either grandmother or mother. So most of our players have come through through or lived here for years. Like George North, for instance, lived in North Wales. Yeah, exactly. We don't have that many projects. There's lots of of Welsh players who were born outside of Wales. Foxy was born in was born in England. Dan Lydiate was born in England, but they've all grown up in Wales. Yeah, and um, you know, and even Toby came over at a very, uh, very young age. Yeah, and you know, his rugby education has, has been largely in Wales. Yeah. So I, I don't think it does. I think it's more the kind of when you look at the the Halaholos and Nick and McNichols. Who, I don't know whether it's just spurious Wales online headlines going, oh yeah, I'd love to play for Wales. It's those kind of players that you do not like to be, and that's exactly what I think. And Hadley Parks, but that's exactly what I don't want to. I don't want to see as yeah. much as I think Hadley Parks is a brilliant rugby player. He can do it. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to play for Wales, does he? It's a second choice, and it's not a second choice. It's it's that kind of careerism yeah. well, that bothers me. It is a hard one, isn't it? Because you don't. We don't. We don't you know. We don't necessarily know. Some of them may no, feel they come over and they play. You know, they play. They've had three years over here. They absolutely love it. They buy into the culture and. 
they just they then feel you know, they then feel well absolutely they then feel absolutely it, it's 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 individual that, that it? I, have, I have absolutely no problem with mm. At all, because but then they can just it's another two, two years. It's what, so. Yeah, well, well, but I think, but people like Rainier Bernardo, who's yeah. just been released by the Scarlets this week, having been released by the Ospreys last year, turned up from South Africa a couple of years ago, saying, "I'll play for Wales," and I mean, it hasn't worked out for him. So, if it stops that sort of behaviour, I think it'd be better for everyone. I do that stopgap thing of thinking, "All oh, right, well, we can have a we can have a South African or a New Zealand prop," just because we haven't got anyone in there at the moment. And actually seeing someone who's come through the system, that's that's a much more encouraging story. That's for me. the biggest issue, isn't it? That it stops it stops play our own or every everyone's own players coming through. There can't be anything more demoralising than you know if you feel as if you're getting you know you're quite quite close to getting to the to the highest flight, and then uh, you know some some player comes, some project player comes over and takes you takes yeah. your spot. I mean, it's an absolute kick. You, you know, you worked your nuts off. God knows how many years, and then it's been taken away from you. It's yeah. not really right, that is it? No, I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's a bit of a shame that it's going to happen in twenty twenty. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it sooner, but nonetheless, a definite step in the right direction, and I think a pretty positive reflection on the IRB's new or the World Rugby's mm-hmm. kind of head honchos and Gus Pichot and the like. I think they've done. You know, I think it's a, yeah. a big kind of statement to make. Right, last thing then to, to finish on, and, and kind of rather unfortunately, it's, it's sadly it's sad news. You know, you would have thought I'd be over the moon at Greg Laidlaw making it into the Lions squad, but my God, it's come off the back of an in, incredibly sad story, and that is um, Ben Young's pulling out of the squad in support of his, his brother Tom, whose who's, um, wife is, is terminally ill. I mean, it's a really, really insanely sad story uh, and, a, and a very very you know sad thing for, for Ben Youngs to end his, his season on in a, in a Lions year it's it's um, yeah it's kind of shocking really isn't it yeah it's very very sad um, and also a difficult one for uh, for probably Greg you know as well yeah you I think wanna, it is yeah. you know, does he you know, does he celebrate you know how does he you know, he's there, isn't he? But it's a, it's a tricky, tricky position for him really to be in as well. But obviously, you know, that's by the by. You know, your your, th- your thoughts go out and to the Youngs family. Um, yeah, and it does put everything put everything into perspective, doesn't it? Absolutely. And yeah, when I heard it on on Saturday night, that was the first thing that I thought of was this puts everything else into perspective. And we you know we get kind of tied up in in rugby news, and it's great because you know it's it's a sport we love and stuff. But it's um, just an in, incredibly sad story, and uh, and obviously for you know for what it's worth, our thoughts are with um, are with the Youngs family at uh, such a, a horrible time. So unfortunately, that's a you know rather um, a rather low note to end the first half of the podcast on. We've got loads more coming up in um, in the second half, which will be um, which will be dedicated to uh, domestic rugby. So we'll speak to you very very shortly. Podcast Network.